My name is Eric McCoy, and welcome to High Wall Clean. What will it take is what I've decided to call this show today. And this is really directed towards our young people that are in recovery. Before I introduce my guest today, who is a young woman in recovery, what did it take for her to get to where she is? You know, as our youth believe that they are invincible, and many think that they ultimately know everything, but it's those untouchables that sometimes reach a spot where we can no longer ask that question of what will it take once they hit the end of the road as a coffin becomes their resting place. There are many things that I can relate to with my guest today as I began my journey in recovery as an adolescent only to make those periods of sobriety an opportunity for me to take a break. My decision to use drugs was because it felt good. And nobody could tell me different as I grew up with the Nancy Reagan motto of just say no. They said no, I said yes. Our youth today are beginning younger and younger and sadly, we hear stories of 10-year-olds dying of an overdose. How can we educate those who believe they know everything? How can we explain to our youth that invincibility isn't real? Now, I want to welcome my guest today, or actually it's tonight, <laughs> Ashley. <laughs> I want to thank you for joining Hi. me. Thank you for having me. You know, your story fits well with this question. What will it take? It does. <laughs> your drug use began very young. Mm -hmm. And could you explain your drug use as an adolescent? And what happened during your teenage years? So my drug use really, as, as really young, like 13 or 14 years old, was just full on. I went as hard as I could. Um, I, it all started pretty much just because I had this like self-loathing. I didn't like myself. I didn't know why. Um, I, I felt like I had, I didn't know who I was and I all of a sudden needed to figure out my identity at such a young age. Um, and I just was very, very just depressed. Um, there was no real reason as to why I just was. Um, and, and you know, and so I was introduced to meth at a, 13 or 14 years old. And, um, you know, when I did that, I really felt like I had all the answers. I felt like I finally, like, I felt like I could finally keep up with the world. Um, and I get whatever, what like was going on around me. And like, I could finally just like be on the same page as everyone else. Cause before that I always just felt like indifferent. Um, and you know, and I having found that kind of like peace of mind that came with that for me, I really just pursued it as hard as I could. Um, and, and then, you know, my whole adolescence was just a cycle of, I would go to rehab, get sent to treatment. Um, and yeah, and I would, I would cheat my way out of there, you know, like I'd learn all the tricks. I knew how to like make you think that I was going to be okay. Um, just so I could leave. And then I would do it again. I'd go as hard as I could until I got sent to another treatment center. Um, and that's pretty much how I spent ages 15 to 18 was in and out of treatment um, without me having any say if I'm like ready to go or not. So when you went to treatment as at a young age, 
were you serious about it? I mean, did you have any interest or was this just a forced upon? Uh, I think it was, well, mostly it was forced upon. I mean, like if I had to say that I wouldn't have gone. Um, but you know, as time had gone on with, okay, let me backtrack real quick. So in my first time I went to treatment, um, when I was 15 years old, I did get 10 months of sobriety. Um, and with that, I was given a whole new group of friends through the fellowship. I was, I kind of got to experience a different kind of life um, than I, I was used to before I went to treatment. And these are just like friends that were just sober and they were happy. Um, and, you know, and so that gave me a taste of like what real friendship should be and like, like what a normal like teenager should be doing. Um, and then when I'd relapse again, I would get, I would get sucked back into the lifestyle and eventually like I, I would, I, it would just make my depression worse. Honestly, I was so lost and I just remember like just wanting to die all the time. Um, and I think in those times are the only like moments where I would say, Hey, yeah, I want to get better. And if anything, it's just like, I just don't want to feel mentally like how I'm feeling. It's not like, Oh, I want to get sober. I want to like create a better life for myself. It's just like, okay, I just like, I'm tired of being so miserable. Um, so I think that would really be the only aspect that that, and then like the friendship thing as well would be the only aspects of like the reasons why I would want to go to treatment on my own as an adolescent. And who was the one who forced you to go into treatment? So my mom, um, I grew up with just me and my mom and you know, it's funny because at first, like I was the last kid anyone would think would do drugs like ever. I was a straight A student. I was honor roll. I played the violin. Like I never lied. I never did like anything wrong. Never really questioned my mom, like nothing like that. Um, or authority, anything. Um, and you know, and so we had this little family intervention thing and she went to treatment for her alcoholism. And at the same time, like they brought me to this program telling me that like, Hey, you're just going to go there while your mom gets better, you know? And, um, that it was actually like a rehab and they just thought I was crazy. They didn't think I was like on anything. And that's when it all came out that I was really on meth. And, um, you know, and my poor mom didn't know what to do with me at that time. And so then she got her little parent support groups and, you know, and I'm like, she, that was just her go-to was like, Oh, Ashley's like, like she's acting out or she's struggling. Um, I'm just going to send her to another program because <laughs> she didn't know what to do. Now, nature versus nurture. So, so one of the biggest debates in psychology and I'll just ask your opinion. I don't know if you can even answer this, but you know, nature basically would say that you are genetically predisposed to addiction yourself. Nurturing would say that you watched your mother solve all, all of her problems in life by drinking. Do you, which do you think had a bigger impact for you? Do you believe genetics or do you believe that you watched your mother do this and so this is the way we deal with life. This is such a hard question that I feel like in every program I've ever been to, they've asked me that or they've had me like write out a family tree to trace back alcoholism and my family and all of that. Um, and honestly, like I really, I don't know what to believe necessarily. I mean, like, I think genetics might play a big part for me. Um, and when I look at this question on like a general scale, like not just personalized to myself, I tend to lean towards the genetics part um, in most cases, because like, 
I don't necessarily remember like growing up and seeing my mom solving alcohol or older problems with alcohol. Um, it was more so that's just like what it was, you know, like I didn't equate that with like self-soothing or anything. Um, but then looking back at my family tree, my mom's an alcoholic, um, her dad's an alcoholic and I could kind of see the patterns in that regard. Um, but I think that's a very good question. And I think it does vary like from people like person to person, because there are people who come from amazing families who, I mean, I came from a really, I was raised really like correctly, you know, by standards, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it varies. And now you are coming up on two years clean and sober as of February. Yes. Of next yes correct. And back to the question, what did it take? And I want to ask you that. What did it take for you to get to where you are right now? You know, I always looked at myself as like none of the consequences, like nothing mattered to me, right? Like I could die. I don't care. Like nothing ever phased me um, when I was using. And what it took was, was honestly how to figure things out for myself, right? So I've encountered so many situations that would cause somebody like, Oh, now I'm gonna get my life together. I'm gonna get sober. Um, like going into treatment, right as an adolescent, and then it progressed like, Oh, I'm getting sent to youth shelter, because there are no more programs for me to go to around here. Um, then progressed like I'm moving in with a random relative in a different state, because no one else knows what to do with me. Um, you know, and, and at like 16 years old, I almost lost my arm from an abscess and, and just nothing seemed to phase me. Um, at 18 is when I had my previous almost two years of sobriety. Um, and what happened with that was like, I finally, you know, I turned 18. My mom was like, okay, you want to go like run around and do what you want? Like now you legally are able to do so. Like, so go have fun. And, and I got arrested after like a month of that, got my first felony. And then like a couple weeks later, I, um, you know, I, this is how I know Jody Barber is I was, at a gas station completely out of my mind really just like not all there um i was really really sick didn't know what was wrong with me um and some lady saw me at just sitting outside of there and posted about me on facebook like what can i do to help her um and somebody had seen that who showed their mom who's friends with jody and um being the great woman that she is she like came to my rescue and uh convinced me to go to detox and i was there i found out I had had sepsis, um, and it ate away the lining of my heart and gave me pneumonia and like all this stuff. And so, you know, I was in the ICU, uh, for two weeks and all of a sudden, like, you know, I've had that whole, like, I just want to die. I want to die like my whole adolescence. And I'm being told I'm going to die. And I'm like, just kidding. Like I lied. I don't really want to die. Like, this is scary. Like I wasn't serious. I take it back. Um, and that's what it took for me at that point in my life to, to, you know, um, to get sober. Uh, and, but with that sobriety, I survived purely off of like fellowship and I got pregnant with my son and that gave me a purpose and, um, got preoccupied with those kinds of things. Um, so that's like what I would consider like physical sobriety, but not necessarily emotional sobriety. So then, you know, after that, what it took for me to get to this point where I actually have like emotional sobriety and like really living it, you know what I mean? Um, you know, it, it took like after my tears of sobriety, I thought I could get high once and nobody would know. And I just wanted to get high to shut up my head. 
um, because it just kept telling me either like get high or kill yourself because you're miserable. Um, so I thought if I could do it once, like I would be fine and my head would just leave me alone. And I ended up on a run for nearly four years. Um, and in that, like I chose to walk away from my son. I chose to, you know, live this lifestyle on the streets and completely detach from what was my life before my, my relapse. Um, I couldn't cope with the fact that I just gave that all up. Uh, it took me like, I overdosed, I broke my jaw in three places. It was wired shut for six months. I was in and out of jail. I was losing my teeth. I lived out of a backpack and quite frankly, like I smelt, it was just not, it wasn't really cute anymore, you know? And, um, but what it really took, like, despite all that, like, none of that stuff ever phased me. Like I said, like, having a kid doesn't phase me. Um, physical injuries don't phase me. Like, me being in and out of jail doesn't phase me. Um, what really, like, brought me to this point was I was just tired. Like, I was tired and I was scared and I didn't want to keep dying anymore. And, like, I just didn't have it in me to, like, keep up with all that, all the energy that I had to put into, like, using anymore. Um so that's the long answer, but <laughs> that's my answer for that one. We had talked about this before. And when it comes to your child and you, you have a kid and, <sighs> you know, so many people would probably look at you as a horrible mother, as a horrible person, yes. um, as ultimately mm-hmm. giving up your child for drug use. And, you know, as I was saying before in, in my book, Pain, Failure and Misery are the Stepping Stones to Success. When the first part of my book is pain, failure, and misery, and I tell a bit of my story. And in the beginning is about the last uh, few years of my use back in 2001, 2000, 2000, 2001. And I had a girlfriend at the time who was seven months pregnant when I met her. And she did a lot of dope. And she was actually the one that brought the dope. Um, that when we had actually met and I watched her through, you know, from the seven months pregnant up until the point where she actually delivered the baby and she had zero emotional connection whatsoever with the child, none. And it was at that point when she gave birth that all of that changed for her. And then that is actually how I end that chapter. And I asked that question, can a mother's love overcome addiction? What do you think? I The answer is no, honestly, because it's like at the end of the day, like my disease, whatever you want to call it, I call it my disease, right? Of addiction doesn't care that I have a kid. It doesn't care what I have going for my life. Like it really doesn't. I mean, you know what? And something that was really hard for me to accept for a long time um, was was the fact that I did choose drugs over my kid, right? And that I did want to be doing that more than I wanted to be with my son. Um, when I was away from my son, I, you know, I really, it comes down to like that motherly instincts. Everybody has it that your girlfriend that you're talking about, everybody has it, even when, when they're getting high, um, as a mom, it's just embedded in you. I really feel like, um, but you know, in order to keep doing what we're doing, um, or what I was doing, I personally had to completely detach from like from my son and forget that I even had him. Right. I had to do as much as I could to just like, forget about it. Um, because otherwise like that guilt just eats at you and it just eats at you and eats at you. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is I couldn't run from it forever. You know, eventually like it caught up to me and I just like, I couldn't, 
I just couldn't stand it anymore. Um, and, but it's funny, you know, like a lot of people will judge me and that's something why I like, that's why I'm so open about, um, my decisions and just the blunt reality that like, Hey, I chose drugs over my kid for a long time. Um, because that's, that's, that's the reality of the situation. Right. And a lot of women aren't, uh, comfortable talking about that. It's something that's like very shameful, you know what I mean? And it's something that I personally judged moms for, or any parents for when I, you know, when I was pregnant, when I first had my son, I never thought I'd be that mom that got high ever. I was not in like my future whatsoever. Um, and then I became that mom. Right. And so now that I've like found I'm comfortable in with who I am as a mom today to be able to talk about these things. Thank God. <laughs> and I appreciate your honesty. And I think that is really very, very important, especially in society today, because people don't talk about this stuff. You know, we lose, no, not at all. We lose people and people die and people don't talk about it. Um, and that's something mm. that I think we need to discuss more and more. That's people need to hear these things. And I think so. I will say that drug addiction has nothing to do with love, period. And that's the sad reality behind it. You know, parents, you know, that have their kids running around doing drugs are always asking that question, oh, does my kid love me? Yes, yeah. but they love the drug more. And exactly when you study physiological effects, you understand that the drugs are affecting the part of the brain that has to do with survival. There's nothing above survival. This was a take two. I'll kind of throw this out to everybody that's listening. <laughs> we had we had to do a redo. We had we had to do a redo. We had an issue on Zoom. I want to blame Zoom, but it, I don't know. It was probably my fault. <laughs> the one thing that we did talk about yesterday that I really thought was important and in terms of that question, in terms of looking at all of our adolescents and our young people. And again, with me, I started drugs at a very young age also. So I do understand it. My years are a little bit further back as you're a little bit younger than, <laughs> <laughs> but the question being, how do we reach the unreachable? How do we reach the invincible? How do we reach those that, you know, have this mentality that I know everything. And it is a very difficult question to answer. But mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you the question based on your life experience. And if you kind of thought back at that point in time, could there have been something different? Could there have been a, another way? Could there have been um, something different that could have potentially helped? I really, I don't think so, right? Because I was given so many different kinds of opportunities and so many different people approached me in different ways. I was offered different kinds of help through different kinds of programs for different diagnoses, right? Like there was so much help given to me. Um, and at the end of the day, like with that main question that you asked, like, well, what does it take, right? And for me to get to where I'm at today, it took me like having to be like just tired and ready to do it for myself. Um, I don't think that me being forced into it in any way would have helped. I don't think, I don't really think that there's anything anyone else could have done. I just had to figure it out for myself. And, um, 
you know, when I, when I look at this question, when it's not in regards to me, I hate that answer. Like, oh, they just need to figure it out for themselves. Cause like you said, there's 10 year olds out there dying. Um, and that's a risk that you have to take, um, when letting someone figure it out for themselves. But I don't really, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I liked a lot. I liked what we talked about yesterday, though, with the different kinds of approach that we could bring for children. And I think that if somebody approached me instead of the whole D.A.R.E. program, like, don't do math or you're going to die type deal, I would have. And more in the like regards that, um, hey, I'm just like you kind of deal or like, hey, go figure it out for yourself. I don't know. Can you explain it better? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not doing good at it. No. So <laughs> treating kids honestly, treating them with respect and telling them the truth. We had talked a little bit about this idea as my podcast is called, well, it was called Recovering Through Highness. We've now switched it over to High Wall Clean. And it's sort of based on that premise of, you know, I like to get high, you like to get high, everybody likes to get high. And, but highness is not a property of drugs. It's a property of people. And I've always felt, and I, again, I talked to Jody Barber about this, that, you know, if we went into schools and looked at what their current educational system is and maybe modified it a little bit, and we went in with that mentality of, you know what, I like to get high, you like to get high, we all like to get high, that's going to open up the minds of people. People will all of a sudden be interested in potentially listening to what we may have to say after that. I really do believe that, again, our educational system, especially when it comes to our youth, is a disaster. You know, as I grew up with Nancy Reagan's motto of just say no, that fails to take into account the minds, my mind, your mind, our desire to understand. And so I think that if we went with our youth and to our youth with more of an honest approach. Because again, if I go in and I say drugs are bad, and then you've got kids that are sitting in there that have already done drugs and they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? They're good. (laughs) (laughs) You've lost those people. If we can work to reach those people that number one, think they're invincible. And if I can at least get them to open up their mind enough to where they're going to listen to what I have to say, that is ultimately what our tactic is, is we need to basically explain to them that you are not invincible, that you're not invincible. You know, when you made a decision to return to using, return to your drug use, I'm sure you didn't think about all of the stuff that potentially was going to come that I'm going to go to jail. No, because it wasn't going to happen to me. It happened to everyone else, but it didn't happen to me. And that's like why I think that your approach to this would be effective, like maybe would have like altered my path. If you know, that would be the only chances because like, I just always grew up with that mindset, not even growing up. Well, I guess, yeah, growing up, but even like, when I'm like seasoned in my drug addiction, I still never thought that that would ever happen to me. Right. I thought I was the exception to it all. Um, and I think if somebody was to come at me and approach me in the way that like, um, I don't know, just, just that we're almost equals, you know what I mean? I think I just would have been a lot more receptive, um, with your approach than the kind that I got at school. It's a real 
you know, it's, it's an approach that is non-judgmental. It's an approach that mm-hmm. is, I really care about what you have to say, you know, that I'm, I've, I've got, you know, the active listening and I'm really wanting to hear what it is that these people have to say rather than telling, because that's the biggest failure right there yeah. is that, you know, when people come in and they tell you something, if I tell you something and you don't believe it, it's not going to mean anything to you. You know, if, if you were, you know, back in, in your teenage years and I looked at you and said, you're a drug addict. And if you didn't believe it, that would have meant nothing to you. And even if I did believe that, I would have just completely shut down and not want to hear anything else that you have to say after that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's what I, that's exactly what I mean by like, when I say that I think, I'd be a lot more receptive to your kind of approach. Um, Cause if I feel an attack coming on in any sort of way, if I feel like I can't relate to you in any sort of way, I, I would have just shut down completely and not heard a thing. Have you heard of um, motivational interviewing? No. What is it? Tell me. So, so motivational interviewing <laughs> is a tactic that they use in treatment programs and a lot of different treatment programs to help people resolve the ambivalent nature of addiction. So, you know, there's days where I wake up and I'm like, yeah, sobriety's great. I'm excited. And then there's other days I wake up and I'm like, why am I doing this? I'd rather be loaded. You know, so there's this ambivalence mm-hmm. that I think we all go through. And I think for any of us that have really found dependency, we're always going to experience that periodically at times. Yeah. You know? I mean, there's days where I think, God, I'm tired. I could use some focus and I could do some meth. That would really help me, you know, <laughs> they pop in my yeah. head, right? And, yeah. and so part of that is, is just understanding the fact that that is a reality. And so motivation, mm-hmm. motivational interviewing is about helping people resolve that ambivalence. And, and this is, again, where if, you, if we can really create an open door policy. Um, you know, I don't know if you ever felt when you were in treatment programs that if you ever just said, I want to get loaded, how would they respond to that? They always try to convince me otherwise, and it makes me mad, and then I end up leaving. Nobody's ever like, hey, like, you know what? I get it. I've been there. Like, whatever. It's normal. It's always like, no, think about your kid or like something like that. And I'm like, that's you. Like, I'm out of here. Give me my phone. I'm gone. Yep. You know, it's, um, and I don't want to say that they're coming from a judgmental point of view, but that's like, that's kind of how I perceive it. Um, is that you're judging me as a mom. You're judging me, my abilities. Like, I'm just going to leave instead of like getting on my level and like, getting through my head that that's normal. Cause that is like, like you said, um, I feel like that's just kind of like what, what I just go through in sobriety is like some days I'm on fire. Other days I'm not. Um, and you know, it really kept me sick for a long time was like feeding into the fear that like, I couldn't feel not okay. You know what I mean? Like any sort of day where I would just, you know, not be really feeling it or like, Hey, I'm really tired. Let me get some meth. Like whatever, just little thoughts would just spin into huge ordeals because I just like, like just fed into that fear. I never was given the, um, the information that I needed to know that like, that's normal and there's no need to fear it. You know what I mean? It's like us feeding into it is like where the problem starts. I think that's really what happens with a lot of people, you know, is that they aren't honest. They don't come forward. They don't 
disclose that information to people because they're fearful of, you know, them putting them down or them yelling at them or, or Mm -hmm. discrediting them or telling them how stupid they are for feeling that way. So motivational interviewing in that basis is sort of, um, you know, kind of like what you said, you know, if somebody comes and says, you know what, I just want to get loaded. You sit and go, I get it, man. I totally get it. You know? And I, I could even switch it around and say, you know what? I want to get high too. But now I'm, I'm talking about a different highness, right? Not from drugs. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, then, and then helping them follow that story through. Are you a, are you a sponsor? Yes. Do you have sponsees? I do. Right now I have three of them. A lot of people that I find in the 12-step program that are sponsors. I also feel as I've watched many that I feel that they don't do things very well either sometimes. Yeah. Similar to that, you know, if you had your sponsee call and just said, you know what, I just want to get high right now. What, how would you respond to that? And, and I've found that the ones that really are the most effective you know, are the ones that number one, aren't going to put you down. Aren't, aren't the ones that just tell you, Oh, you're going to lose your kid. Oh, this is going to happen. That's going to happen. Because again, we're talking about drugs and none of that matters. Well, so like I've had, I've had those calls, um, and I've had a number of sponsors relapse. Um, but in those calls, like I try to be like, even not just as a sponsor, but like my friends that have, I've known in and out of the program and stuff, like what I try to be for them is like what I needed at the, that time. So, you know, I, I try to be that person that's like, dude, I completely get it. And it's normal, right? Like you don't need to act on it. Like the problems are good. It's kind of exactly what I just told you. Like the trouble is going to come when you start to feed into that, like it's normal, you know? Okay. The best way I explain it is like, for how many years have we programmed our brain to, um, to respond with the thought that like, Hey, I'm going to get high, you know, as a, as a response to like something that's going on in our life or a certain emotional trigger, like something happens. And like, we've spent so many years drilling into our head that like, okay, what do we do as a result of this? Like we get high. Right. And even in like a couple of years of sobriety, like, I don't think it's fair for us to expect our brains and ourselves to just like, not even think like that anymore. It's going to take time. And it's not only going to take time, but it's going to take like, practice of like responding to these situations in different ways for our brain to kind of rewire a bit. I mean, I don't know the science behind it, but that's like the conclusion that I've made for myself. They call that neuroplasticity because you have created a lot of brain damage. Sorry to tell you. (laughs) It really has. I swear. But the good news is that your brain will rewire itself and it will function Mm -hmm. better with what you have left. So this is why we want to keep what we have left. <laughs> <laughs> right. How do we reach the unreachable? How do we how do we reach those that know everything <laughs> or teach those that Right. So I think I think the conclusion that like I've come to is like you've got to let them have their own process, but at the same time, it would not hurt to come at them with a non-judgmental point of view. I think part of with our youth is they don't have anybody to talk to. That's true. Like they're not going to go to their parents in most situations be like, mom, like I'm, I have a problem with drugs. You're like, I feel like this, like. They're not going to go to their teachers. 
They're not going to no. go to the police officers that go to the school and teach them about drugs. <laughs> That's true. And I don't think they're going to go to their friends all the time about like their feelings and their struggles necessarily either. And that's where if we can, again, be an ear for people, you know, if we can put ourselves out there mm-hmm. to where we can, where they have somebody that they can talk to that isn't going to slam them down, isn't going to judge them, isn't going to call the police, isn't going to throw them in a mental hospital. Yeah. <laughs> that are actually right. willing to listen <laughs> and to do something. And yeah. So you're coming up on, uh, up on two years again. And mm-hmm. what are you doing today that is helping you make that happen? Like I told you yesterday, I really think the only thing that like I've done completely differently this time is like work the steps. Um, only because like, I just, I'd never seen the importance of it before. And this time I really had a sense of urgency and was really over trying to figure it out myself. Cause it just kept ending me up like dead, honestly. Like that was the point. That was my very last, like, hi, it was just like, I overdosed. I was like, well, this wasn't supposed to happen. Like, and I came into this sobriety and these steps with the mindset of like, I'll do whatever I have to do to like not die anymore. Um, and you know, and so I really think that working the steps, uh, with, with, with such an urgency early on in sobriety has given me a sort of foundation to build a life. And, um, I think that also for me today, it's about just like staying connected and finding balance because, um, you know, before I relapsed and I had my two years, I got my life, I got my son. Well, I mean, I had my son, (laughs) I had my son and then I was working and that was it. Like I wasn't doing anything for myself, like program related, had no connection with God anymore. Like my life was literally just like my son and work and that was it. Um, and that obviously did not end well for me. And so I think what's really important for me today is to like, remember why I get to have this life today. Like I get to be a mom to my son and like actually show up for him today. And I get to like, I'm a caregiver as a job today, which is like super cool. Um, and like, I'm able to be a daughter today, but in, in a sponsor and like just a, a, like a good influence on other women. And like, the only reason I get to do any of that is because like, I have this connection with God and like I've created a foundation in AA and that's just like what works for me. Um, I don't, I really don't think that that's the only option for everybody, but I've just tried everything else on my own. And like, this is the only thing that's like helped me to this extent. So where's the father of the kid? Is he around? So, I mean, he's around. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's kind of complicated. I mean, he's, he's sober. So, I mean, it's definitely been a lot worse. Um, I, he's been sober, I think for about like 18 months now, um, isn't doing AA and it's fine for him. He, he lives not that far away with his girlfriend now. And, um, and so he gets to see Noah, which is our son. They, we see him maybe like twice a month or so. Um, and like me and him are able to like coexist today and actually be friends today, which is like super impressive after like four years of like a very toxic relationship and that's using together at the end. Um, but my son is just very much used to just having me or my mom around. So it's not like he asks a whole lot for him. Um, which I mean, I, I, I look at that as kind of like a blessing in it all that he's not really used to his dad being around too much. 
there's not going to be another what would it take right <laughs> no no i really hope not no i don't plan on it um i have confidence that if i keep doing whatever i do today like i'm not going to encounter another one of those issues issues i said it so nonchalantly but like you know what i mean like i really don't I don't live in fear anymore of me relapsing and like the people around me or like people who even know me don't live in fear anymore of like, when is she going to fuck this up? Um, like, when is she just going to get high already? Cause it used to just be a matter of time. And like, now, like I don't, I personally don't even have to live in that fear, which is really cool. Cause I let that fear consume me for a really long time. Um, yeah. Yeah. For me, you know, we hear it, we hear in the recovery world a lot, that, you know, people will say like, oh, just go out and do it until you're ready. You hear that a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, personally, I think that's a dangerous statement. I think, um, you know, and again, especially with somebody that is very knowledgeable about addiction and how it works. Um, sadly, a lot of those people won't make it back for the ones that do go, mm -hmm. go out and try it again. Um, I'm also one that fights for people and looks to, you know, help as many people as I can. Um, so they don't have to really fall into all those categories of what it takes, quote unquote, what it takes. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing. It's like, it doesn't, I don't know. I feel like a lot of the people who say like, Oh, just go get high and figure it out. Like that a lot of those people that's like that's either i find that they that's either what they did or either they're ones that just like got sober right away with like no problems at all um and like considering the fact that that is my story and like i had to go have all those like you know i had to find out for myself um and i'm lucky that i made it back but considering that that's my story i have to realize that that does that doesn't have to be everyone else's um just because that's my experience doesn't mean that it has to be yours too um, and a lot of my sponsees that I've had haven't had that experience yet. And I think it's been a really beautiful thing to watch them like get this thing and watch, just watch that that's possible. Cause for me, I just, I never thought that that was possible that like I could get this before I really like effed up my life. Um, so it's been a really cool thing to see that happen for other women. Well, I want to ask you a question that I asked you last night, and that is if you had something that you could tell people that could be helpful, especially for our younger people, what would you, what would you like to say? I'm pretty sure this is the same answer I gave you last night, but it's just like not to give up like ever. Um, whether you are somebody that's going through issues right now or like can't stay sober, like anything in life, honestly, or if you're like you, you're the parent or the, you know, one of your loved ones is out there like and can't get this thing. Like no matter what, just like don't give up because that's the one thing that I've never done. Like sure, I've like given up, but I never like fully, fully gave up. I still had a little bit of fight left in me. Um, and when it comes down to like my mom or even my son, like they never fully gave up on me either. And like because of that, like I have an opportunity to have the life that I have now. Um, and if I'd fully given up on myself, like I wouldn't be here at all. So listen to your own <laughs> advice, right? Don't give up. I know. <laughs> oh, oh, you're right. <laughs> Everybody out there has all the answers that they're looking for. They may not see them. And so as a counselor, one of my jobs is to help 
them pull that information up so they can see it. And then it allows it to be useful. And I always like to do groups with clients and, you know, I'll even have, you know, some clients that'll be going through these struggles and issues. And then I'll ask sometimes another client, what do you think about, about this? And they come up with these brilliant answers. <laughs> and it's easier, <laughs> it's easier to tell somebody right? else than to do it yourself. Right. <laughs> so follow your. And what I found the reason behind that is because like, we don't always feel capable ourselves, you know, like I could, I feel that the other person is capable to like use all this advice and like pull through it. But when it comes down to myself, for some reason, I never, I don't want to say never, but I've always struggled with the idea that I'm just as capable. You know what I mean? Well, Hey, I want to <laughs> thank you for, uh, for doing this again. I really appreciate it. It's, uh, yeah. It's Thanks for having me again. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so I want to thank everybody for tuning in to another episode of High While Clean. I almost called it Recovering Through Highness. Again, it's High While Clean now. <laughs> and I look forward to the next time. Hang tight, all right? Yeah.